we see like scientists, especially astronomers, as like in the romantic way of like being those guys who like sit mm -hmm. on the lawn with a telescope looking at the sky. Mm -hmm. And nowadays, it's science is way more complex and it's more closer to data analysis. Like it's big data. You're listening to Beyond the Jargon, a conversation with graduate students about their research journeys at the University of Victoria. Welcome to Beyond the Jargon. I'm your host today, Liz MacArthur, and joining me in the studio is Sebastian Lavoie, who is a PhD in astronomy here at UVic. Um, welcome to the program. Hi, well, thank you for having me here. <laughs> uh, let's start by sort of talking about more specifically what you study. Um, you're just the second uh, astronomy uh, student here, so it's exciting to have you on. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, okay, so the stuff I study is, you know, all of those things are we study are pretty like detailed and isolated, but what I study is the, the impact of the environment of a galaxy on the way it evolves throughout cosmic times. That's what I do. Wow. Uh -huh. <laughs> that sounds like a pretty big idea. So <laughs> can oh, we... Oh, yeah, yeah. That's like the, the broad, like, uh, mm -hmm. yeah. Do you study specific galaxies? Yeah. So uh, specifically, uh, like, we have to start large scale. So uh, on very large scales, galaxies and stuff amasses in long filaments or in big groups. Like, can imagine, like, our solar system has bunch of planets around our sun. If you take a bunch of suns with solar systems, you get a galaxy, and galaxies all also live in groups together. Oh. And those big structures that they form, the largest structures are called clusters, where you have hundreds or thousands of galaxies living together. And I'm interested in some of the biggest galaxies living in specifically those clusters. What are the names of those galaxies? They, <laughs> it's, uh, you know, scientists are not very good, I think, at imagining names. Mm -hmm. So they are called brightest cluster galaxies brightest because they are the most massive they're also the brightest and that's that's it aha uh -huh. okay so the brightness <laughs> comes from the sheer size of them is that yeah, like basically number of stars and number things? of stars exactly mm, okay. uh, so a, a galaxy like this could have the equivalent of uh, a thousand billion suns like our own sun forming a single galaxy wow that, that's like way more than i can even imagine that's, that's a lot that's a lot <laughs> yeah. work with big numbers so uh are we part of uh, a system or a galaxy that you would study uh no because we we don't live in the there are many levels so clusters are the the biggest ones the biggest structure in the universe uh we live in a simple uh, galaxy, we call them galaxy groups. So mm -hmm. there's uh, there's our galaxy, the Milky Way, and our ne nearest big neighbor is Andromeda, which is about two million light years from us. And there's a bunch of other small guys, but mostly it's a small structure because you see there's only two big galaxies, a couple of small ones. So they they still interact together, but it's at the, the because there's only so there's so few of them we just call them groups. So mm -hmm. I wouldn't study them. Mm -hmm. They're very interesting. There's there's more many times more groups than there are clusters, big clusters. Mm -hmm. uh, but we don't live in specifically a type of structure I would study. Okay, yeah. um, and so can you tell me about the one that you study? Like, actually, before we get into that, let's talk about like why why do you study this? This is really <laughs> interesting stuff. But what led you here and brought you here to What's this? The, how far do you want me to go back? Let's go back to the beginning. Let's yeah. go back to the beginning. Mm -hmm. Okay, so <laughs> it's my, my beginning. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, I will like here just guess I was probably 10 or 12 years old mm -hmm. when I started being interested in astronomy. 
And it's only my, I was actually thinking about it on my way here. Well, how did that actually start? So I was at a book fair of some sort, you know, like a kid, you don't, 10 years old, 12 years old. And my parents just told me, okay, so you can bring home one book. You have to choose one book. And there was an astronomy book uh, thing for like kids that age. And I don't, I remember selecting the book. I don't remember specifically what was in it, mm. but I guess I liked it because a couple of years later, my parents bought me like a first telescope. Oh. And then the rest is just eventually I had that. And uh, I had to decide what to do my undergrad in. So I decided I, d I did physics. Mm -hmm. uh, physics and astronomy are pretty close, same undergrad pretty much. Um, and then when you finish your undergrad in physics, you, you know, you kind of fall into, well, you, either you're going to go stop and you're going to go teach or you fall into grad school. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to do research. So I did, I did my undergrad and my master's thesis in Quebec City. Um, and I don't know, and the, the, you need a passion, I guess, which in my case started like 50, almost 15 years ago. Mm -hmm. And... Well, if I'm still here, I still have the passion, I guess, mm -hmm. I guess, for it. And then at the end of a master's thesis, then you just, you have to, uh, uh, it's better if you move around, oh, if yeah. you study in, at different institutions with different people. Um, why? Uh, I'm not exactly sure how I could explain why. Uh, I can only tell you, tell you that it's, it's seen as better because oh. it's more different experience because look, um, in, in physics and astronomy, even when I get my PhD, I'm not at the level where I'm, I can be hired, really. I need mm. to do a postdoc and even two postdocs before I can be hired. And you know at some point you're going to move around. Mm. And, and although there are thousands of astronomers, uh, you only you start with a specific field of astronomy and you kind of study that. It's the same case for anyone doing uh, grad studies. Uh, so there's a lot of um, uh, networking. It's very important. So, mm -hmm. so uh, studying, doing a research at different institutions let you just be in contact with uh, more people, give you more opportunities. So that's why I think that's why it's 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 better this way. Right. Yeah. 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 That makes sense. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so what led you to Victoria specifically? Uh -huh, the, the question that uh, <laughs> uh, I, you know, when I finished my master's, I at some point I realized, oh, my God, I'm almost done. I need to decide where I'm going to mm -hmm. do I wanted to do a PhD. Well, I need to decide where I'm going to end up. So, talk to some people, and you get some. Um, basically, you, you contact some faculty members in other universities. I contacted people in the U.S. Uh, here in Victoria, and they either you come up with your own project or they will suggest something. And my current supervisor here he just had a very interesting project, so here I am. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, so the stuff that you're studying is related to what your supervisor is doing. Is that is that right? You. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So you sort of join the project. We, we we're not exactly. We're within the same larger research group. We're doing. We're within the same larger research group. Mm -hmm. We're not doing exactly the same. Uh, the same thing, but it varies a lot. Some supervisors gonna are gonna be doing something much closer to what their students are doing. Mm -hmm. Some supervisor is gonna be much more, uh, much more different. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so it just varies a lot. Um, is the stuff that you're doing now for your PhD, Are you, were you starting to look at that as far back as, say, your undergrad or your master's, or is this a totally new project It is you? actually a mostly totally new project with some, 
some applications of stuff I've done during a master's thesis. Mm -hmm. You don't really... So I did, I did my undergrad in, in Quebec, so we don't have the concept of honors thesis. Okay. Um, so I you don't specifically do research type of things or specific things when you're an undergrad. Uh, so when I was a... Uh, when I did my master's degree, I did some... Um, some instrumentation work. Go to a telescope mm -hmm. and get your hands dirty, like moving parts in it and uh, mm -hmm. fixing stuff. Um, and that was with a prototype of an instrument that is now the, the second version 2.0 has been installed in at a telescope in Hawaii just at the end of last year. And this is going to make a, this type of instrument is going to make a comeback in one of the project of my PhD. Oh, okay. So there is some links, mm -hmm. uh, but the general project is different. Right. Yeah. Um, so, um, so you wound up at UVic and now you're working on your PhD. Now tell me, how do you study what you study? Are you looking up at the sky through a telescope? Are you like making calculations? <laughs> I, I wish I was doing all of this. No. Uh, so <laughs> that's, uh, that's, that's interesting because I was, I, I gave a talk pretty much two, two weeks ago to the Royal Astronomical Society mm -hmm. here in Victoria, uh, uh, amateur astronomers. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that's a thing I really, really like to talk them, to them about like history and like how we see like scientists, maybe especially astronomers, as like in the romantic way of like being those guys who like sit mm -hmm. on the lawn with a telescope or something or binoculars and looking at the sky. Uh, this, while this was true at some point, Mm -hmm. uh, like 200 years ago or something. Uh, nowadays, kind of science move, right? We used to, there are big names like Einstein and those guys and some guys before. Mm -hmm. Science had the, it's heroes at some point. Mm -hmm. And nowadays it's, science is way more complex and it's more closer to data analysis. Like it's big data. So it's a lot of, a lot more people, a lot more complex observations made from a lot of different places, telescopes and everything. So we don't necessarily um, fly out all the time to go to the telescopes because there's only really three places in the world where the best telescopes are hmm. uh, in Hawaii, in Chile or in space. Ah. You can't really fly <laughs> to space, so Chile or Hawaii. Um, but most people now are part of larger research groups. Hmm. So the groups as a, as a whole maybe is based around what we call a survey, which is going to ask for observe, observing time everywhere, get all of this, and then it is shared to to the, the members. In my case, that's what happened until, for the first half of my PhD, I worked with um, data that already existed, mm -hmm. that came from all over the place, so Southern Hemisphere, Northern Hemisphere, space, everything. Yeah, we don't fly as much. We get to travel. Mm -hmm. We still get to travel, but we don't necessarily fly out because it's it, it's expensive, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so it's sort of like you send a call out to various telescopes and say, can you give us data from this like time frame that we can analyze? Yeah, you kind of select targets. You right. write a proposal, mm -hmm. and then they have to, then they go through all the proposals and they they accept or they reject it. Ah, okay. If they accept it, they're gonna basically they streamline the process to save some time where they have. Uh, observers there who are they, they operate the instruments for you and then when it's observed you get you get the data back mm -hmm. so i spend most of my time in front of a computer basically right. <laughs> <laughs> but so, so when you're asking these people to get this information for you are you asking them to hone in on the specific area that you're studying and then you're asking for very specific stuff it has to be pretty pretty specific mm -hmm. you need to represent like um, so this is science so it's 
everything mostly now is centered around has to produce a publication or mm. which is the representation of peer-reviewed accepted additional knowledge that you add to astronomy right um, so you present that that's your pitch right the, the observations are required based on whatever we know from those other studies or whatever is going to produce is going to let me answer that question mm -hmm. I need those observations at that level of precision uh, please give me the time for it mm -hmm. Okay. Um, so what are you asking for? What are the observations that you're asking for exactly? It's, so we call them just, we call them targets. In my case, they're, they're those clusters of galaxies, those big, big uh, hundreds of galaxies together. Mm -hmm. So they have name, also not very uh, original names, but they have names and just, mm -hmm. okay, this instrument can give me the, the, the type of information I, I need, can be just, uh, just an image in a specific color. We apply filters basically to see, say, only the red, the red part, the blue part, or it could be the better thing is to get what we call spectroscopy, which is basically simplify as much as possible. You take the light from an object or mm -hmm. one of the galaxy or many of them, you shine it through a prism and you get the, the, like the rainbow on the other side and the different uh, levels of colors give you some information about what's happening or how fast it's moving, the physics that is happening mm -hmm. actually inside inside the object. Huh. So that's the kind of things we ask. So then you go through the list down to the list of telescopes and each of them have a limited set of instruments mm -hmm. that do uh, only usually one thing. And you prepare, you prepare your proposal for a specific set of targets to answer a specific question based on the specific instruments that are available at a specific facility. Over the course of your PhD, are you doing this multiple times for multi to answer multiple questions, or do you have to have sort of one big question that you get the data from, analyze, and answer? It's usually uh, more than one question, mm -hmm. because again, the, the what represents the quality of your work is a peer-reviewed publication. Mm -hmm. um, so. Not exactly sure it's an, if it's an average, but I think on average people who finish a PhD, at least in my field, get three. Okay. Ish, three publications. Um, and usually the answers, they don't necessarily, they don't have to answer like qu a question and like follow-up questions. Mm -hmm. Usually they will, they will be related in some way, but they answer usually three slightly different questions. Because again, we don't, it would be awesome if everyone at the end of their PhD came up with like a revolutionary thing. Mm. That is not what happens. Like the real real science is uh, the small steps. So basically you do uh, three small steps mm -hmm. and then you get <laughs> your PhD if you've done it right. Right, okay. Can you uh, tell me what your questions are that you want to ask or have asked? Uh, so the first question I was looking for is, so at the center of those clusters, uh, specifically at the center, live very those very, very massive galaxies. Mm. Uh, and they are the largest individual galaxies that are known in the universe or live there. Because there's other galaxies and galaxies interact and they can merge and so the galaxy in the center can actually grow and becomes bigger. Mm. Um, so I looked at how this evolution happened. What is it that the galaxy, at the, that brightest cluster of galaxy, what is it that it eats to get bigger? Does it get bigger? It mm. does. Uh, what is it that it eats to get bigger? Right. Um, the following questions is, so that was kind of a large scale thing. The following question that I'm looking into right now is um, if you want to get very detailed, like kind of zoom in information of that galaxy, you need, uh, you need to get out of the atmosphere because the atmosphere is our worst enemy because it blurs everything out when you put a telescope 
uh, inside the atmosphere. Mm. So your telescope is in space, like the Hubble Space Telescope, um, you have much sharper uh, image. So you can see much smaller details. So my the second project is, okay, so I know that they're getting bigger by eating some other type of galaxies. Can I see that happening uh, as it is happening? Because all of this is happening over billions of years so mm-hmm. so and but i don't see the evolution i only see us we only see a snapshot of the universe that is available to us so if you look at a bunch of those galaxies maybe you'll get some of them who are in the process of growing by eating their neighbor hmm. which is why i'm looking for to do that using much more much sharper images from a space telescope the third question I'm going to try to answer is so those two questions you see are kind of like one in a follow up mostly they, right, they look the yeah. same the third question would be different in that it would uh, specifically target a different type of galaxy that lived in in those in those clusters so galaxies are actually not not a fixed entity or something like in our milky way there's a couple hundred billion stars but the milky way is still forming new stars hmm. so in that sense it's an active galaxy because it is adding new new stars from the gas that is still left in, in, inside it. Hmm. Uh, in clusters, though, it's different because most of the galaxies, if not all of them, almost all of them, are, uh, we call, are pretty much red and dead, is a term we use, <laughs> in that they, they have old stars, they're not forming new stars, and, that's, and hence they, they look bluer when they form new stars, and they look right. just red, except for some other small guys, which are like the outliers, which are kind of moving between being those blue galaxies still forming stars and becoming just uh, red and dead. Uh, so specifically, I want to target those guys because there's not that many of them per cluster. So getting a good number to get good statistics is actually hard. Um, but this still has something to do with how the environment, so the cluster here being the environment, how it affects the evolution of of those guys, how it takes them as being slight blue galaxies and turns them into just another guy, hmm. basically. So they still have new star formation, but but part of them is also sort of dying at the yeah. same time? basically what we're hmm. seeing is that the, so the, the clusters have a bunch of galaxies in it, but there's also uh, what we call, there's basically gas that we, keep, yeah, we only see in X-ray hmm. um, within the cluster. There's a lot of it. So if you take a galaxy that still has some, gas that it can use to form stars and you throw it through that gassy cloud that is the cluster, you're going to actually remove some of the gas. Mm. So what we see is those galaxies get their reservoir of gas gets depleted quickly mm. and then they basically they, they can form new stars. So that's why they just become a red galaxy. Yeah. Okay, so I have some follow-up questions here. The first <laughs> sure. one is um, your the first question you asked. Have you sent out asking for the data, and have you got stuff back and analyzed? And so the first question I asked basically the the, the paper is written mm-hmm. and it's been submitted at the end of last year, and now it's almost there. Basically, it's pretty much pretty much done. Mm-hmm. So I'm just starting the work on on the second one, a kind of follow-up, like zoom-in observation. Right. I already have the data. It mm-hmm. comes from different people, but I made sure that I had the data to just at least start working on that. And the third question with those blue guys being affected by the cluster environment, I'm actually writing the proposal right now to the deadline, I think, is in two weeks or something, uh, <laughs> to be to be observed uh, 
hopefully in the second half of the year. So for the uh, the data you've already received, did you find anything surprising to you? Or when you went into it, um, you did you expect to get something that you got back and then uh, basically reported it on is, that? You'd, it would be cool if we started with the certainty of the answer. <laughs> so that's why I don't think you can, even when you start a PhD, you're, you know, like, what is the the project, what are the projects that are going to form your PhD? That changes all the time mm -hmm. because you you have an idea of where you want to go, but you haven't analyzed the data yet. Right. So sometimes it's kind of like change and you don't. And when you actually start write the paper or something and you like, what can I actually say? Mm -hmm. That very often changes at least slightly during during the process. Because if you already knew what was the result before you started, then, then you're not really doing a PhD, I guess. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Were you able to see uh, galaxies sort of eating their neighbors? Uh, well, we don't see it directly. So we designed mm -hmm. a way to uh, some sort of diagnostic, if you want, uh, to, to see that they had to be growing back. They had to be growing by eating their neighbors. Um, and then this—that's for the first. That's for the first. The first paper, in the one I'm working on right now, we do see some of them that are literally just—they have some mm -hmm. kind of gassy structure around it that is not them. Mm. It's an additional structure that comes from them. Basically, imagine you have like that big, big galaxy, and the universe is dominated by gravity at those scales. Big, big galaxy, very massive, strong gravity. And you throw a smaller guy at it. If it passes too close, mm. it's going to be. Uh, stripped and and disturbed and eventually it's going to fall into the the big one so uh, it just sort of gets absorbed by it yeah. it becomes part of it and are those is that and that is different than say one of the the galaxies that's still making new stars passing through and then turning into the sort of red and dead galaxy the galaxies that are like blue usually they don't even make it to the near the center of the cluster before mm -hmm. they're we call them processed by the cluster before they become red, uh, red and dead. And the ones that I'm looking at, the, the, the primary source of galaxies being eaten by the big one in the middle mm -hmm. it, are actually galaxies that are already red and dead. Hmm. So what happens to them? The, like Anything that's existing within them just becomes part of it? It's mostly, at this point, if you remove like the gas, uh, a galaxy is just a bunch of stars mm. and, and, and dark matter. Um, and the dark matter is just going to mix with the rest. The stars are just going to mix. Mm -hmm. That's what is interesting in that galaxies, when they interact and they merge, looks cool, but nothing really explosive happened because stars right. don't hit each other. Mm. Uh, that's uh, that's that's the an example because that's going to happen to our own galaxy eventually because the Andromeda, our big neighbor, which is slightly bigger than our own galaxy, is actually. Uh, falling towards us, or we're falling towards them, depend the same is the same thing. Mm -hmm. But in a couple billion years, they're going to collide, and it's going to look nice for some other astronomers <laughs> on another planet looking at it. Right. But uh, for people in it, I guess the sky will look pretty cool, but they're not going <laughs> to feel it. Right? The the, the mm. it's mostly mostly empty. Hmm. empty space uh, so it wouldn't necessarily be catastrophic for us if when the two galaxies it wouldn't collide? be catastrophic by the time that happens though uh life on earth is gone right uh, will be gone by for million billions of years right yeah, okay. so it's a long time from now <laughs> <laughs> um what got you really interested in this this is a fascinating topic but um why did you take this path specifically uh that's uh, that's another very good question 
Well, galaxies are galaxies are fun, mm -hmm. and uh, the way they interact. You know, we. That's an interesting thing that only astronomers have in that. When we look further away, we look in the past. Mm. But that also means that we almost don't really see what the universe looks like in the present because there's almost, there's only a tiny sphere around us that is the universe that is not too old. Mm -hmm. If you look further away, you look at the universe as it was before, right? So all of this is kind of how, how those massive structures, how did the universe evolve to become what is the universe that we see right now? Mm -hmm. We call it the local universe, the, the nearby region of, the, of our universe, basically. So the evolution of that was... It's just a very interesting, mm -hmm. I think. It's extremely, it's in intriguing, although it's not going to, uh, it, it doesn't change on, on a human timescale, right? Of like 80 right. or 100 years, it's not going to change. Um, but it's interesting to imagine, I mean, we're part of that process, I mm -hmm. guess. Does uh, that, uh, the idea that you're studying things, processes that take billions of years does that ever put your own like life into perspective at all <laughs> uh, well uh, no i don't know uh, everyone has to do something mm -hmm. and it is uh you know i realize that i do something that is like so like mind-blowing i guess maybe or something mm -hmm. like that um yeah maybe maybe it makes us feel it makes it makes me feel as if you know, most of the most of the prob problems that we have on the on Earth are like, eh. you know, people, people, there's always war and stuff like that. That is so irrelevant. We live and then we're all gone and we're replaced by something else. Right. Mm, that yeah. is, uh, but it's in a positive way, I think. I think. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned giving a talk to the Royal Astronomy Society. Is that yeah. right? Yeah. Um, and you mentioned before that you're interested in outreach as well. Is it? Um, why is it important to you to do outreach with people and maybe talk to people outside of your enclave at the university? So there's uh, two ways to answer that question. There's like the the boring way, which is I'm paid by public money, so I should give back uh, <laughs> by trying to do that, mm -hmm. te teach people. But when we do that, I'm, it's it's hard to go into the details of your research, right? So you, you, you're not exactly... You wouldn't be helping people understand why they pay you by specifically telling them about the latest galaxy that you've discovered. That's uh -huh. not exactly the point. It's uh, it's partly that, but it's also the the, the passion. And mm. I just it's fun being like you know when you're in a room and you're actually the expert. Yeah. <laughs> like if someone that, if someone in that room asks me a question about anything, I can uh, I can answer it. And outreach for all ages is incredible because so we have we sometimes we have uh, kids between like six and ten years old or 12 mm -hmm. uh, visiting here because there's a big telescope on campus and the talk i gave two weeks ago was to people who are like between 30 and 60 or 70 years old they have the same face yeah <laughs> they have the same face when you tell them something about the moon or the sun or how incredible you think the universe is mm -hmm. they have the same face and i think that's you give them something they want to hear, and obviously they appreciate it. Mm -hmm. So that's why outreach is so, so cool. You share a passion mm -hmm. with people who are just happy that you do. Right? Yeah, that's pretty cool. Yeah, I guess it's rewarding too. Yeah, yeah. it is rewarding. Mm -hmm. um, I talk to a lot of people who are passionate about things, and sometimes and and wind up you know studying and working with it, and sometimes that changes the passion. So for you, are you still interested in? You know, I don't know. I, I think maybe the main jumping off point for people in astronomy is like the night sky. Does that still interest you? Things like that? 
It, it, it does, although maybe, <laughs> maybe, working with, you know, maybe working in front of a computer makes it a less... Um, I will admit that I, I don't know all of the constellations mm. because that's not really how we orient ourselves when we point very precisely a telescope in space. Right. Um, <laughs> it, it, no, I don't think it, it doesn't make it less interesting. It, mm. I, I can't, I, with my own eyes, I can't see the stuff that I'm, that I'm actually studying, right? Mm. Um, uh, I don't know, maybe it, actually, yeah, it, it doesn't change how I, how I see the sky. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it makes me want to like. I always look up when I'm outside, right? Which is hard for me in Victoria because in winter there's clouds all the time. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> so that doesn't make it easy. But I always look up, even just because maybe that's how it changed me, right? Yeah, yeah. Always looking up. Yeah, always looking up. That's funny. Uh, so after this, how much longer are you going to be working on your PhD? Do you think? Uh, two years, probably. Okay. Mm-hmm. Two more years. And then you said that um, to be hireable, you need to do postdoc or two. Yeah. So <laughs> how long does that take? Uh, postdocs are uh, nowadays are usually two years, mm-hmm. and. Uh, well, that's interesting because the Department of Physics and Astronomy is actually hiring an astronomer right now, so they're going through the whole process. Mm. Um, and usually, you become hireable uh, after when, as you're doing your second postdoc. Mm. Uh, so it's a bunch of apply for fellowships and and whatnot, go somewhere, do some research, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So that's the option. So basically, that's a a thing that graduate students are aware in any field is that. You know, there's one fa- there's one prof mm. who's going to train 10 PhDs in their career. So not all of the 10 are going to get a faculty position, which is, in my case, that's the dream job. For most people going into that field, the dream job is you get through all of that and then you can do both teaching and research. Mm. Uh, but that's not the job that they're, you know, in a country like Canada, this is not growing really. Mm. We're not hiring more faculty position, faculty members in, in astronomy in Canada. There's other positions, like in Victoria, we're lucky because there's the Hertzberg Research Center in Astronomy, the only federal uh, lab in astronomy in Canada. Mm. So there's a bunch of people there who are only res- who are research professionals, so they're not, they're not profs. So that's another, that's another option. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's kind of the same thing. You do have to finish your PhD and then most of the time postdoc or something like that. Yeah. Or the other option, but that's still not everyone gets gets a job in that. That's you. You have to be aware, and I think all grad students are aware of that. We don't necessarily admit it, right? <laughs> because we still we mm-hmm. still have the passion, or else we wouldn't be here. And that's why we we put ourselves through grad school. Um, the other option is lots of things. Yeah, Out, but that would be outside of outside of academia, basically. Right. Um, because I spend all my days in front of a computer doing analysis of big data sets and stuff like that. And as a physicist, I'm trained as a problem solver. So um, there are many other options, hmm. many other jobs, programmer, whatever you can imagine, basically. Yeah. But that's if you, if the system kicks you out or if you don't get the <laughs> fellowship or the right thing or whatever, mm-hmm. or some people is because they don't want to move, for example. Yeah, I can um, see that, yeah. Which is also one of the reasons why you would want to move, prefer to move between your degrees because... You, you have to move at some point to know how what it's going to do to you move like very far from where you always live. Was that an adjustment moving, uh, I guess, across the country, essentially? Uh, yeah, it wasn't that bad. Mm-hmm. I, did, I stayed in the same country, so it wasn't it was it's different. But it, I think the weather maybe is the thing that was the hardest to to adjust. Right. There is no snow, but 
<laughs> here it's interesting because when I want to, if I want to see snow here, I decide when because I can go to a mm-hmm. mountain or whatever. And also the fact that there's only really two seasons here mm-hmm. is <laughs> kind of interesting. <laughs> yes. Um, so in my case, I think it was wasn't that that hard. But again, I stayed in the same country. Some people who would go from Canada to wherever I don't want to give a specific example but for some people it could be actually hard to mm-hmm. the point where they decide that they stop and they just come back home and they do something else I've gone over time but <laughs> it's been such an interesting conversation I want to thank you so much for being my guest today well thank you for having me and best of luck with uh, the third question <laughs> <laughs> thanks Thanks for listening to Beyond the Jargon. If you're interested in being interviewed, please email cfuvcad at uvic.ca. To listen again, you can find a link to the podcast at cfuv.ca.